shuffle, stumble, crawl, um, try not to impale yourself. In, well, okay, if that makes you comfortable. And <laughs> you over there, are you, are you eating the neighbor's cat? <laughs> all right, well, you know, dinner and a movie, that's fine. Welcome to Hey All You Zombies, our weekly look at uh, the interesting side of popular culture. My name is Chris Abel. And I'm hey, Richard Sonic. Krause. Richard I'm Krause. There you go. the internet tubes, Richard Krause. <laughs> uh, and uh, let's see, as we, we do with uh, every episode, we're going to recap uh, what mm -hmm. happened with Movie Pistols at Dawn, the weekly game that we play, in which Richard and I duel out uh, for who has picked the most interesting aspect or popular aspect of an element in a movie. And uh, last week, to honor the passing of uh, director Tony Scott, mm -hmm. uh, we talked about what was his... Uh, best movie, and uh, I just want to briefly thank Brian Calhoun, who uh, wrote to me to tell me that um, he felt that the best movie that Tony Scott did was Days of Thunder. Oh. And the reason that he chose it, uh, he says here, is that the, it's the NASCAR element, of course, uh, but he's also the only director who has done a motorsports film you can believe is real. See, now, I, I might uh, take a little exception to that. Uh, there's movies like Grand Prix and things that have amazing, amazing uh, race car scenes in them. Uh, look, at, look for Steve McQueen. If you haven't seen uh, some of these movies, look up Steve McQueen on IMDb and just poke around a little bit. And Because several of his movies have the most unbelievable car chases and uh, racing uh, footage in them because he was an actual race car driver himself. Right. And, uh, I mean, in terms of, of NASCAR, at least, NASCAR is yeah. very, very tricky to kind of make interesting. It's an unusual American phenomenon because right. essentially all the drivers just go around in circles. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have to at least say that I've played a lot of NASCAR video games, <laughs> and I find that as uh, realistic as they are in terms of simulating the sounds of the engines, the, the, the presence of the cars, the right. dashboard is perfectly real, uh, sitting down and playing a real-time NASCAR game is incredibly boring and so i i, mm -hmm. I give mm -hmm. credit i do have to give credit to the idea that tony scott managed to make that very very captivating if you watch the film it's not just the the way that he captures the speed of the cars going by which is what most movies right. tend to fa focus on is the speed but just in the interchange of the cars as they go back and forth right. the random things that can happen at one point you see a camera almost get jostled and then have to readjust itself cool. like the, all the cars do. And I thought that was pretty awesome. Well, see, when I see that, because you see that in movies sometimes, right? It looks like there's an accident. The, the camera's fallen over. And, put it, and I wonder, is that, and how staged is that? Because it does lend an air of immediacy to what's happening on the screen. Right. And someone like Tony Scott was savvy enough to understand that, right? So I don't yeah. think that there's accidents like that that actually happen that make it onto the screen. No, and, and that would have been, I think, probably the rig that they were using, the cameraman almost sort of steering the camera, yeah. much like they were steering the cars. So I, I have to uh, – much appreciation to Brian Calhoun for, for raising that point. It wasn't something I had thought about. Uh, the people voted. We had really good turnout for votes this time. Good, good. And, um, as you predicted, they, they chose true romance. Yeah. Uh, I knew they would. Yeah. I knew they would. I've accepted my fate on this one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, I think the victory here is that uh, both of us chose movies that Tony Scott isn't really well known right. uh, for. You know, it would have been easy to go for Top Gun uh, or Beverly Hills Cop Two yeah. uh, or Thelma and Louise, but both of us chose. That was Ridley. That was Ridley. You're right. Yeah. Both of us chose movies that were kind of um, obscure that maybe people hadn't heard of. I had a few people ask me after we, we taped that, what is Domino? They hadn't even right. heard of it. So uh, if you and I encourage people to go and see those films, great. That's well, and go uh, if you don't know what Domino is, uh, go to the HeyAllYouZombies.com website. The trailer's up there. And it's worth it just to hear Kieran Utley saying, my name is Domino Harvey. <laughs> Domino Harvey. I love it. <laughs> ah, cool. Uh, and this past weekend was uh, Fan Expo. Yes. Big, huge convention here in Toronto celebrating all aspects of genre. It was just mm -hmm. a wonderful experience. Uh, did you enjoy your day? I did. I mean, I, I typically in the past have gone for two or more of the three days, you know, have spent more time there. This year, way too crowded for me. And I think one of the complaints that I've been hearing 
uh, for the last number of years is that, you know, it, it, the stuff is cool. When you get down there, you can buy, uh, you know, some really interesting things. You can meet Stan Lee was there. You can meet Stan Lee. How cool is that? You can meet the Candyman. Tony Todd was there. You can do all that stuff. But, man, try and get around. Try to navigate your way on Saturday afternoon through that floor was uh, an exercise of frustration. I did a book signing for my new book, Raising Hell. Let me give myself a little, uh, I've decided a new thing I'm going to do here. Uh, every time I mention the book, I'm going to do, I'm going to snap on some devil ears. <laughs> so my new book is called uh, Raising Hell, the uh, Ken Russell and the Unmaking of the Devils. And we did a special advance uh, sneak peek and signing there and the signing went really well but I was you know in a little box and say I was in a booth I was protected from all the people and I signed them we sold a bunch of books and then I thought oh, you know what I'm gonna have a walk around I'm gonna see what's going on on the floor here and I lasted for about 20 minutes before I just it was overwhelming for me and then I, I said I'm out I'm just gonna get to the nearest door and get out of here and it took about 45 minutes to find a door that I could get out and that to me is the downside the the event itself is so cool and and I love the uh, that's enough of the double ears. I think I love the I love the people that uh, show up and you know really go all out for this. I mean they they uh, they dress up. Uh, there's a real sense of community uh, in you know the floor. Like you know people are. I yeah I think it'd be fair to say that a lot of the people that go to this are considered outsiders to a certain extent in their own communities. And uh, and here though. They've found a community that accepts and is openly accepting of them, whether you're dressed as a giant germ from an anime uh, cartoon or whether you're, you know, dressed as a steampunk, uh, you know, character or whatever, or whether you're just wearing street clothes. People are really cool and it's really fun to hang out in. But uh, I just wish that the space was bigger or that it was outside or that there were ropes that you could crawl up every now and again just to get off the floor and give yourself some breathing space. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I've been going for years, and it just keeps getting bigger mm -hmm. and bigger and bigger. The number of people that, that show up each year are more and more and more. And yeah. what's odd is that it's it's not so much that it's becoming more mainstream in terms of the audiences. It's becoming more mainstream because you have large uh, networks and studios coming yeah. in and setting up booths. Yeah. But just the sheer number, it used to be Saturday was the day that was insane to kind of walk around. But the other days were kind of quiet. Right. I went on Thursday, I went on Sunday, and they were both packed. And no, absolutely. Crazy. And, you know, it, it's funny because we talk about the, the big companies coming in, kind of co-opting it a little bit. I'll tell you, that wasn't really my take on it this year. Now, certainly there were big booths for gaming uh, from gaming companies, and a bunch of the studios had stuff. But I'll tell you, one of the cool things that was there uh, was um, an exhibit for the movie Frankenweenie. Disney had set up uh, dioramas of the actual characters and sets used in this stop, Tim Burton stop-motion animation thing. And I'll tell you, they were extremely cool and really fun to have a look at. And I was really tickled just to be able to see them up close like that because uh, typically speaking, I don't think that you get a chance to, to see that stuff uh, as, uh, as up close and personal as we did there. And um, so that was cool. Even though it was you know, a big multinational coming in, they brought something that I thought uh, fully uh, belonged there and actually belonged on that floor. Cool. Um, and I love just roaming around and sort of seeing the, the, the smaller booths that are there. I've got uh, zombie tape here, yeah. zombie outbreak on it. I, I got that from a booth um, from OttawaHorror.com, right. community of Ottawa uh, fans up there. That was pretty cool. And then um, I also picked up this awesome science shirt. It's for uh, scientists and genius. Oh, yes. Yeah, Tesla, yeah. Tesla, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's from a woman I've been following for some time. I'm going to pull up uh, an image of her. Here she is, uh, named Danielle DiVincenzo. And mm -hmm. she does T-shirts that are all about science. So right. I've worn a shirt that says apple pie, and it's the mathematical sign for pie. And she does <laughs> T-shirts about Schrodinger's cat, cat and kitty. Those that she's holding in her hands are a pair of Schrodinger's kitty panties. Right. So you have to be a real physicist, you know, the kind of woman who's sexy under her lab coat kind of thing. Right, right. Awesome. Yeah, fantastic stuff. But it was great <laughs> just to – I've been buying her shirts for a couple of years now and wearing them. Here's what my chance to really kind of meet her, get to talk to her. And I found her to be this incredibly lovely person, just 
Oh, fun. Wonderful person to talk to. Uh, yeah, and she even includes these little tiny um, info cards with every shirt that explains to you what Schrodinger's cat is in terms of physics, what the movie oh, that's cool. is all about. So fantastic well, see, work from her. That's the kind of stuff that I love about this festival, you know, the, the fan expo. It's that you find stuff like that there that would typically, I think, probably only be available online. I mean, you'd have a rough time finding it, but you get to actually interact with the people. And, you know, uh, Artist's Alley is really cool. There's, and it's not an alley anymore. It's a, <laughs> one whole section of the, of the floor, the convention floor, which is enormous. I mean, there were... You know, tens of thousands of people here. This is this is not you know an event with uh, twenty five hundred people that show up. This is a an enormous event, and uh, so Artist Alley has bloated, become bloated and grown. And uh, it's really cool though to, to walk through it. And you know, all, at every table, there's someone uh, drawing you know a character that they've designed for a comic book. Or Captain Canuck was there. Richard Cumley, who who created Captain Canuck was there. That was very cool. And um, I really liked seeing that. I liked uh, the idea that. A lot of the art that was on display was completely affordable, um, and uh, and you know it would be a fun thing to have. You could buy original uh, frames from uh, comic books and things like that, plus larger art if you want. But um, there was things from you know five dollars to five hundred dollars probably, and so I thought that was really cool. And you get to meet and interact with the artist. Yeah, very, very cool. Yeah. I have, uh, oh, wait, no, it hasn't come through. I've just, uh, I found one of the photos uh, that I took of um, the uh, the uh, Frankenweenie thing. Let me see <laughs> here if I can get it, if I can pull it up here. Um, because uh, it really was cool. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that, um, again, if you're going to, if you're going to do this kind of thing in a, in a, a, a situation where you've got people who really know their stuff and take this very seriously. Um, I think that it's, it's crucial that you do it right. Mm -hmm. And so let me just uh, pull this up here, screen share. And uh, are we up? Yeah, oh, there we wow, go. Yeah. And see, and there were large displays and um, I just thought they were really cool. And they, there, there were a number of them, but the, the attention to detail in them, if you look at this photograph, um, you'll see, you know, that there's actually uh, stuff on the on the side here. I can't really see, but in, in the back here, you can see that there's tiny little microscopes and things on all the on, on the table and stuff. And it's just so completely cool and, and something that's just a lot of fun to see close up because you normally don't get a chance to, to look at that stuff. Cool. Um, all right. So for our, our first topic this week, uh, I opened up the, the show, so you should uh, begin. Yeah, um, well, I'll tell you, I wanted to, uh, there's, my two topics are, are going to be interrelated. Um, right. the, the first one that I wanted to talk about yesterday, I, I'm in the middle of uh, preparing for the Toronto International Film Festival. So for a few weeks now, I've been screening three and four movies a day. And then when I'm not doing that, I'm working on this thing, which is the beginnings of my schedule with all the interviews that I'm going to be doing for the festival. And it's, it goes on and on. Uh, and... Um, so I've been dealing with with uh, sort of or thinking a great deal about the idea of fame recently, because there are many levels of fame, as we all know. And um, it, 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 one of the things that I found really interesting is yesterday I had uh, a young man named Brandon Cronenberg uh, stop by the radio station to tape a, a panel show with me, which will air during the Toronto International Film Festival. And you probably recognize the last name. He's David Cronenberg's son. And he's also a filmmaker and a good one. He's made a number of short films. He's also made uh, a feature, which played at the Cannes Film Festival uh, most recently in May. And it was the first time. This seems kind of unbelievable to me, but uh, David was there. David Cronenberg was there with uh, Cosmopolis, and his son was there with a movie called Antiviral. And it's the first time in Cannes history that uh, a father and son duo have both had films in the festival at the same time which I thought was kind of funny or interesting. So anyway, he stopped by, and the, the thing that got me thinking about this uh, as a topic for today is that his movie is about, uh, it, well, it's about a number of things. It's a thriller. Um, it's kind of a, a, maybe not a whodunit, but a howdunit. But it's about a, an era set, I don't know, two years from now, 10 years from now, in the very near future, where people have become so obsessed with movie stars and maybe not even specifically movie stars, but just people who are famous, uh, that they actually buy diseases from 
the stars through a clinic. Clinics sell their, you know, smallpox and herpes and, you know, whatever else, their germs to a clinic. And then the clinic resells them to people who want to feel a little bit more apart, you know, or, 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 or feel one with their uh, favorite stars. And uh, there's a whole other sort of things that happen with this. I'm not going to give away the whole plot here because right. uh, it, it would be less interesting to do that. But for when you see the movie, because it is an interesting movie, it's a satire. It's there's lots going on here. But I, I thought at the beginning, when I was half an hour into this movie, I thought this is outlandish. What an outlandish thing! And then it made me think about a story that happened a few years ago. I was interviewing Paris Hilton at kind of the height of Paris Hilton mania. You know, she was making movies. She had a record out. Uh, she had, a, I think, a couple of television shows on, and you couldn't turn around uh, without hearing a story about Paris Hilton, without seeing her on TMZ, without something happening. She was very much in the news. Now, that's changed a little bit, and that's sort of the fickle nature of fame, but at this moment, she was not yet experiencing that. And so... I interviewed her, and we were meant to do the interview uh, in a hotel room, but she wanted to get out of the hotel room. So we went downstairs outside at the Four Seasons in Toronto, which is no longer there. It's closed now. Uh, and we were standing outside, and she was just wearing a T-shirt and jeans, I think, and we were doing the interview, and she was freezing. It was May, but, you know, for Toronto in May is different than L.A. in May, and I think she, was, she found it a little chilly. And so I gave her my jacket to wear during the interview, my suit jacket. So she wears my suit jacket throughout the whole interview. After it's over, she gives it back to me. I put it back on. She goes back in the hotel, and there's barricades set up because hundreds of people showed up to get a glimpse of, of Paris. And there's barricades set up. So I thought, well, I'll go over and talk to these people and see what's going on. So I walk over to speak to the, the people that are all uh, standing behind the barricades, and they're all kind of agog. They're like, oh, my God, you've got to touch her. You've got to see her. She wore your jacket. And then one of them spotted on my shoulder a long blonde hair that she had shed and left on my jacket and i was sort of you know talking kind of amiably with these you know very rabid fans and i found myself grabbed and pulled into the crowd and people wanted the hair they wanted paris hilton's dna somehow that was going to be like the ultimate fan token yeah. You know, and I just thought, wow, you know, that as I was watching this movie about, you know, uh, the, the in the movie, all the celebrities are uh, fictional, you know, uh, they, they have names like Hannah Geist and things, but you get the idea of who they're supposed to be. So I'm watching this movie about literally, you know, you could get George Clooney's skin flaps if you want them, you know, or, or whatever, and thinking, you know what, maybe we're not so far afield from this movie. Maybe, you know, it's set in the... Uh, future but i think in the plausible future some on some levels and you know i i i when i thought of the paris hilton story i thought back of doing other interviews with famous people and you know um, i remember interviewing uh, bill wyman from the rolling stones one time and he chain smokes he chain smoked the whole time this happened with david lynch as well chain smoking the whole time and uh so you know there's an ashtray with with cigarette butts in it which people took afterwards and saved them because they were the remnants from somebody that's been you know who's who's very famous and i just thought wow what an unusual kind yeah. of odd uh token to have i mean i'm not an autograph collector but i can understand you know something if you have a personal connection with that if you've met that person and you you take home an autograph and it's a it's a moment that you shared with them and you can go you know i remember when i got this and it'll trigger a memory sure. but you know the Paris Hilton's hair. And I've often wondered what's happened to the hair. You know, is it like Jurassic Park? Is it enclosed in, in some kind of like plastic now waiting for a time when you can clone a new Paris Hilton out of this? Yeah. And, Do they have enough sense as to how to necessarily preserve it? I mean, at least hair, to, to be honest, will sort of last longer than... than well, and you got to get the root, though. You have to have the root for it. I don't know if there's any root on this, uh, okay. on this hair. But I, I just thought, you know, and, and you know, really, uh, realistically, and, and, you know, the Kardashians are, are who they are. I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of the Kardashians, practically. But I understand, and every time I talk about the Kardashians, I end up getting kind of shitty mail from people saying, you know, I like watching it because I can just turn my brain off and I can watch it and screw you if you don't like it. Listen, that's fine. You want to come home after a long day, I get it. You, you Maybe you don't want to think so much. about it. Right. Watch it if you want. I don't care. I think that the that, you know, honestly, that they're kind of the antichrist. Well, whatever. It doesn't really, you know, my, my opinion on this is neither one way or the other. But, you know, if you think about it in terms of the movie Antiviral, uh, you have 
uh, in that movie, celebrities selling their germs and, you know, blood samples and things um, for a rabid public. And, I mean, the Kardashians have sold essentially everything else except their diseases, you know? And, mm -hmm. and you know, you can, the, 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 and Paris Hilton too, the array of products that you can buy from these people is staggering. I walked down Young Street just, you know, 10 minutes from my house here in Toronto the other day, and there is a pop-up store for the band One Direction. Now, they're not selling DNA or viruses or anything from the guys in the band, but this store will be here for a month or so, and uh, the whole store window is dolls, you know, like a G.I. Joe dolls only, you know, or whatever, uh, of the band. And inside there's posters, I assume, and T-shirts and bracelets, sure. whatever, whatever teenagers might buy in the music. But, you know, here's the interesting thing is that the music was kind of the last thing I thought would be there, you know. <laughs> but, but I thought how interesting uh, to have this pop-up store you know, happen uh, seconds away from my house for a band that I'd be surprised. Well, I mean, I certainly couldn't tell you a song. Now, I shouldn't really be able to because I'm not a 16-year-old girl. And I, I, I feel very strongly that uh, a lot of popular music like that is, is is they don't want me to like it. I shouldn't like it. I'm too old to like it. It, it, it should appeal to the people to its market, which is 16-year-old girls. It doesn't give them a whole lot of longevity in a career, but it's what it is. It's, 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 it, it is a certain uh, market that belongs specifically to the young and willing to let them have it. But I thought how interesting it was that I couldn't name a song from them. I wouldn't recognize any of them. And yet they have their own store and there were lineups to get in. I've walked past several times. There's always people coming and going. Wow. I, I think what you're hitting upon is sort of that transition where you have the, um, the golden, uh, the olden age where, you know, celebrities were idols. Right. They were people that you kind of worshiped from afar. And that relationship is what drew you to go see their movies and the theaters to now, where it's almost uh, being the flip side, they've kind of tra transferred over a line and become product. Yeah. Product yeah. that then becomes heavily uh, merchandised, you know? That, well, that see, yeah, I think change. that, you know, when I, and I, I keep coming back to the reality stars because I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, they are the stars of, of our era now, like it or not, whether you watch the shows or not. You know, uh, you might not watch the shows, but I certainly know who Kim Kardashian is. And, you know, I was at the grocery store earlier today, and I saw, you know, an Us or an In Touch or one of those magazines in the checkout. And, uh, you know, Kim Kardashian's on the cover, and it's like, her gay lover speaks out or something. And it was this story that's very likely fabricated, that likely has nothing to do with real life. But uh, it might not have been gay. I think it was a threesome. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, female lover speaks out, whatever it was, but but she sells magazines, sure. but you know because in, you you wouldn't see someone on the cover of that many magazines with that amount of regularity if they didn't sell magazines. So I think it's interesting that these people have become simply brands, and you know the reality stars in particular I think are brands. I think that they understand that they have a short shelf life, right. and that um, you know you you make grass while the sun shines or make hay while the sun shines, whatever it is. So that means getting out there, flooding the market with stuff that is branded to you. And then hopefully, you know, you can get four or five years out of it and then you've made enough money so you never have to work again. I guess. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but well, you know, their talent, people say they have no talent, but the talent is marketing themselves Correct. and like it or not, that is something that's you know in the internet age and in the instant uh, the, the the sort of the instant access that we have uh, to everything age. I think that is uh, that that is a, a talent to have. Yeah, or it's it's something that uh, you know if you, often show business is by nature a very exploitive business, yep. and so I think that this talent of being able to market yourself is. Uh, something that people have developed as a way to protect themselves. Right. Well, you can you know, exploit yourself rather than have someone else do it. Correct. That we have, you know, many generations of people that were very, very big on huge, huge shows, but are broke uh, as they get older on because it's the, the studios that own the rights and the properties and the residuals yep. and all those things. And so this is one way of sort of pulling control away from that. Or ask, ask anybody from the first wave of rock and roll, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Little Richard, all those guys. I mean, Elvis died with no money. It's only after he died that, you know, his family said, you know, Elvis, you can't, you know, he's not here to give it all away anymore. But, you know, but he was uh, a superstar. He was a much in a much different situation. And even yeah. he didn't really make all that much money. 
uh, while he was alive, and it wasn't until later that he did. So ask those guys about marketing their brand and how you know they didn't seem to make any money. And that's why Chuck Berry doesn't go on stage until he gets a suitcase full of money. And he gets a suitcase full of money. He'll open it up. Apparently, he has a look through it. He goes, all right, let's do this. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. Well, my, my first topic kind of uh, ties into that in a different way. So I wanted to talk about uh, Neil Armstrong, mm -hmm. uh, who just passed. And unlike some of the people that uh, have been uh, notable um, contributions to, to sort of society, Neil Armstrong, I think, got plenty of coverage. Despite the fact that uh, Snooky had just given birth, I know. when <laughs> I saw was, that, when I saw that those two events, that his passing and, and her uh, birth, the birth of her spawn, uh, uh, coincided, I thought, oh man, you know, like it'll be a flip of the coin here to see who gets more coverage. And I think he did okay. Yeah, I think, I think he, he did, did okay. really well, and not just in terms of remembering him and his life, but also I think coming back to a sense of what the accomplishment was right. in terms of landing on the moon, walking on the moon. That was fantastic. And as I've been thinking about it, one of the things that I've come to kind of feel a sense of regret for is that as a little boy, Neil Armstrong wasn't really a, a strong role model for me. Right. That by the time, you know, that I had been of an age where somebody like him should have had a very strong influence, the world had kind of unfortunately moved it on. Right that there wasn't as much interest in space exploration. I can tell you that when I went to school, it was barely talked about. Right. Uh, teachers, I think, had a sense that, you know, this just wasn't something that people were connected or plugged into. And I kind of feel uh, a little sad about that, and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about uh, a bit today and share some perspectives. Uh, I think the, the accomplishment of landing on the moon was incredible. Right. Uh, Brian Cox, he's a, a physicist and television presenter over at BBC, kind of guy you just want to hate because he's very good looking. Uh, he had an initial career as being part of a boy band, so he was part of really? the music industry. Yeah, <laughs> That's what happens to the guys in one direction. They become uh, geniuses well, on television. That, that's the thing. Like, you find out that the guy, the key, imagine if the keyboardist for One Direction right. was secretly getting a PhD in astrophysics right. on the side. That's how Brian Cox, and he's that's very... What Brian, that's what Brian May from Queen did as well. Completely. Years later, he got a PhD in astrophysics after, you know, years after Freddie Mercury passed away. But, and Brian Cox is the kind of guy, he's so good looking that women swoon over him. Uh, but also just in that I've watched his, his, his work, I've read his books, and he's, he's really damn good. Like, you know, he's a kind of yeah, guy. that is annoying. It is annoying, yes. But he also, I think, quite succinctly uh, put it, he described the accomplishment of landing on the moon as being one of the few times in which humanity reached beyond its grasp. Right. And I thought that was very, very eloquent in terms of trying to say, look, this, is, this was that one point in time in which we all kind of went beyond what we thought was possible and we achieved it. Uh, right. At the time in 1969, uh, the total uh, government sort of... Uh, economy at that time, 4% was devoted towards the, the budget, towards the space program. Yeah. Since then, most of that's gone military. It's quite kind of a sad thing that, that has sort of happened in terms of losing its focus on what that importance of space exploration was. But I think that Neil Armstrong was a very specific role model uh, at a time for kids in the late 1960s and 70s. I, you know, I love seeing movies that go back to the 1960s and you see kids drinking Tang and walking around with toy helmets uh, on. Listen, I remember all this very well. I mean, yeah. I was about six years old when, the, when they landed on the moon. And, you know, part of me was annoyed by the whole situation uh, only because, uh, you know, Scooby-Doo wasn't on or whatever. Gilligan's Island wasn't on for a few days there. But then when it happened, I remember it's like somebody flipped a switch and I was like, oh, yeah. You know, like that thing, we're on that thing. And, and the enormity of it even sort of struck me. And I was one of those kids that, you know, I, I, don't, I didn't have uh, anything as fancy as a store-bought helmet. But, you know, I'm sure that I had, you know, a tinfoil helmet that I made for myself and pretended <laughs> that I was on the moon. Cardboard box with like coat hangers or a little Listen, you know, that would have been high tech for me yeah. in 1969. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the thing that's exceptional about Neil Armstrong, and people have been talking a lot about this since his, his death, is the character of the man himself. <laughs> that here you have somebody who is accomplishing one of the biggest moments of conquest mm -hmm. ever. You know, to go off into outer space, to, it, no one really can appreciate just how dangerous it was to, to get into those rockets. He had a long history of 
uh, being in aircraft that had failed and exploded right. and he managed to survive. <laughs> uh, I mean, it doesn't get more macho in my mind right. than that. And yet as a human being, he was the antithesis of machismo. He wasn't a braggart. He, even though he was a, uh, a naval aviator, just like the guys in Top Gun, he never behaved right. in that fashion. Right, right. I, in fact, there's a, a wonderful quote very early in his career. Uh, he was giving a speech and he said, I am and ever will be a white socks pocket protector, <laughs> nerdy engineer, born under the second law of thermodynamics, steeped in steam tables, in love with free body diagrams, transformed by Laplace and propelled by compressible flow. Wow. Yeah. And wow. It, uh, it says a lot as to what kind of a guy, even though he was this man who could um, act with incredible mental agility under enormous pressure, yeah. even though he would travel at tremendous speeds, he was one of the first pilots to actually kind of technically touch space just in a regular jet before he actually got into you know, the, the space program. An amazing right. man, but very much a, a, an engineer at heart. This was right. you know, at an age in which... They rocked pocket calculators and slide <laughs> rules instead of, you know, laptops and, and smartphones like they yeah. were today. Or, or if they used a computer, it was one of those computers that took up four rooms in the basement <laughs> of the uh, – and they had reel-to-reel -reel tapes on them on the outside yeah. for some reason in the basement of the Pentagon. But even when he, he came back, uh, there was an immense opportunity for him to be the, the biggest hero on the planet mm -hmm. to really cash in on fame to really march merchandise if, himself if he really wanted to and he didn't instead he right. ended up you know going back to ohio uh doing a little bit of teaching spending the rest of the time on his farm trying to get away as much as possible from that mainly because he felt that it wasn't his personal accomplishment he was you know part of a team of thousands right. of people he was very much an engineer and that his interest was constantly in trying to solve problems the fascination of finding something that's new to discover instead of conquering and right. the reason I, uh, you know, I, I think that that's such a valuable and rare role model for us to have in society because it's not something that you see elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not something you see in sports where a lot of athlete, athletes are into trash talking, right. where you know, you're humiliating your opponents. It's not something you see in politicians where there's right. a lot of mudslinging that's going on. Uh, you know, even in terms of the military, there was a time in which you know, soldiers were meant to be a little dignified. Now it's hoorah and rock and roll with ACDC blasting. Right. And we're going to go get those guys who are a different color than us, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Clint Eastwood did a great quote recently. He said that uh, you don't have to be disrespectful to be masculine. Well, see, here's an interesting thing, and I agree. I agree with all you said. I, you know, listen, I, I had a conversation earlier today on the radio. It's been a long day already, uh, and 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 essentially, it was about how uh, some peanuts were thrown at a CNN uh, camera person of African American descent. And the line that by whoever threw the peanuts at this woman said, this is how we feed the animals or something like that. Yeah. Right? And this is at the Republican National Convention. And, you know, I was on the air uh, with uh, some uh, someone who firmly in the right wing, I am firmly in the left. And then there were a couple of other people. And I got into it a little bit with the guy from the left wing and I, from the right wing, rather. And it, my point the only point that I was making is he was saying, well, who knows if it was a Republican that threw it? Who knows if it wasn't a plan from the... And I said, you know what? Who cares at this point? What you had was terrible behavior, and we should be looking into why that behavior happened, not who did it and why, and ideological things don't really enter into this uh, equation. Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter who did it. Both sides have as much... Uh, mudslinging to their credit. The the Republicans, I think, are just a bit louder about it than Democrats are, but Democrats are no stranger to it either. And my thing, uh, whether it's in the U.S. or whether it's in uh, Canada with our, as I sit here in Toronto, our mayor, who is, uh, to put it charitably, beleaguered <laughs> by the press and some of his own buffoonish kind of uh, antics, um, I, I would just like to see all that stuff slide away and have people actually talk about the stuff that matters and be dignified about it and, and be someone who uh, doesn't turn politics into a sport, who doesn't have to be on one team or the other, who understands nuance. And as Clint says, you know, you don't have to be disrespectful to be a man. You can be uh, or to be a person. You can be firm. You can have beliefs. No one's taking that away from anybody. But let's talk. 
and let's try and figure things out in a way that doesn't mean that you're automatically wrong because you identify as a Democrat and I'm automatically right or wrong or vice versa because I'm on the other team. I'm, I'm, I, I think uh, until we can get past that, uh, then we're, this, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. And I think Neil Armstrong maybe is a, a good example for us to look to. Yeah, I, I, it, for me, it's it's something I've been thinking about for a long time because I remember being a little boy and playing with other boys and, you know, whether it be Dungeons and Dragons, you know, the very nerdy kind of, you know, right. um, sense of play. But in terms of competing against each other or kind of, you know, doing that aha moment, yeah, yeah. Uh, did you not know I, I have, you know, yes. a ring of protection plus three, that kind of thing. It was very respectful still. Right. And then the moment that... Um, video game culture started to rise up and we had kind of this frat boy jockish kind of behavior arrive the next thing I know I'm playing in a video game I got a headset on and some guy's yelling suck it down bitch yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. just that change has kind of happened and I feel that in society we don't have enough people who are representing the, the proper way to try to you know earn achievements the proper way to go about a sense of accomplishment right. and that was something that neil armstrong i think really represented in terms of taking one of the biggest accomplishments and trying to put it in terms of a perspective of how we have to see it it's not something that is uh about glory it's mm -hmm. not something about uh you know gaining something over somebody else yeah. but just having the daring to dream about something and to reach you know as, as brian cox put it beyond our grasp yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't think that we're going to move towards or move back to, I guess, um, a situation where people look at accomplishments uh, as something to be, you know, uh, something to reach for uh, when we have, you know, kids being given uh, gold ribbons just for showing up at school and you don't, you, you're not allowed to get a zero anymore because you didn't do your homework and that sort of thing. I, I, you know, this isn't really the forum that we discuss this kind of stuff on, <laughs> but I mean, really, what, what does that teach kids? I mean, it teaches kids that you don't have to try. It teaches kids that it's okay just to show up and not do your best. And I, I, I really object to it. I really do think that, you know, this sort of greatest generation stuff, uh, which Armstrong was a part of, you know, sort of Second World War into the 60s, 50s and 60s. And I, I mean, I do think that, you know, people back then had a much different attitude. And it seems like someone just flicked a switch somewhere along the line. And then all of a sudden, we went from respectful decorum to suck it, bitch, in, in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, my next topic, I'm going to talk more about that. I'm not. Um, I, um, I wanted to talk a little bit uh, more about fame, a little bit more about, uh, you know, we talked about branding and how branding uh, has now become so important for uh, actors. I want to talk about an actor who hasn't done that, an actor who has managed to, um, you know, sort of evolve away from having to do that. Now, this guy, the first time we saw him, he looked like this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, Third Rock from the Suns, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And you remember this. He was on this show for uh, six years in total, five years as a regular cast member, and then he left and then sort of made sporadic appearances in the last season. And uh, then he went to school. He made a couple of films that you would expect him to make, you know, uh, as, a, as a popular sitcom-based teen actor. Um, you know, he, he did uh, uh, 10 Things I Hate About You. He did uh, the voice for the Treasure Planet movie. And he would, that, that's what you would expect. That's where you would expect to see him. And then he said, you know what, enough of this. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to study French. Maybe I'll move to France. Maybe I'll just, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to act. He didn't act for a while. And then after he left Columbia University, he said, you know what, I'm only going to make good films from this point on. I'm not going to really worry too much about building a career. I'm not going to uh, do the things that people expect me to do. And then all of a sudden, he starts making movies like Manic, which cost about $50,000, a feature film cost about $50,000 to make, uh, indie comedies like 500 Days of Summer, uh, and, and Mysterious Skin, uh, where he played a gay hustler uh, that you know was uh, the victim of child abuse, and it was a, a, a disturbing, dark, weird film that you would not expect from someone that got their start on uh, a sitcom. I mean, imagine uh, you know Jim J. Bullock saying, you know what, I'm going to make interesting art films after, you know, the career that he had on, on television. Um, and he made a movie called Brick. Mm -hmm. And Brick is a really interesting movie. It's a, a high school noir. So you have uh, these high school kids of high school age 
you know, saying things like, uh, you know, uh, looking at the, the tough guy in the school. And, uh, and he says, either that ain't blows or I clam, meaning either that guy goes or I'm not going to say anything. Right. And uh, so they talk like Dashiell Hammett, you know, private detectives, but they're all 17 years old in high school right now. And um, a really inventive, interesting film directed by a guy called Ryan Johnson, who has directed Looper, which is opening the Toronto Film Festival, and uh, also stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and it's a mind-bender. It'll make the inside of your brain itchy a little bit, I think, uh, seeing this film. But I just love how he can go back and forth uh, between movies like Brick and Mysterious Skin, another movie called The Lookout, which uh, he plays a guy with a head injury who's trying desperately to uh, rob a bank and trying to figure it out. And, you know, there's sort of off-the-wall choices there, but mixed in with all that, you have uh, movies like Inception and The Dark Knight Rises and things. So whenever you were this weekend, he maybe he was starting a bicycle courier movie that didn't do particularly well. It was called Premium Rush, and it was a little bit of fun. Um, my theory, people just don't like bicycle couriers. So they didn't go, why should I pay 20 bucks to go see one in the theater? Um, and if you live in the city, you'll see 20 of them as you walk out the door. So maybe, you know, you don't, you don't need to pay your money for that. But um, I just love how he's resisted branding himself as anything other than uh, an actor who's willing to take chances, an actor who um, you don't know quite what to expect from him each and every time out. And uh, I guess that's his brand, and that maybe is the genius of Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Well, you know, I think that um, there's a, an interesting parallel there with, say, Johnny Depp. Right in that Johnny Depp also had the opportunity to go off and sort of create his own uh, brand. I, I, you know, I mean, Johnny Depp was, was, I think, a little bit more of a, um, promoted as a teen idol. Yeah. Joseph Gordon. Well, when you look like that. Yeah. I mean, that's what's going to happen when you look like that. But what's interesting with Johnny Depp is that he did go through that period where he was doing things like Cryberry, he was doing very, uh, Crybaby, but doing very experimental films, uh, Dead Man with Jim Jarmusch, for example. And yet, almost in a sense, through being very successful and picking up <laughs> those right. oddball uh, movies which became big hits, it's like he ended up coming right back to the, the same destination where he's now a very large, successful brand. People will go see any movie as long as Johnny Depp is in it. Uh, yeah. Oddly enough, by taking a different route. I don't know mm -hmm. if that was really his intention, but it's sort of he ended up the same way. And I don't know if the same thing might be possible for uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt if he continues on or he ends up getting into a, a, a relationship with a director much like Johnny Depp did with Tim Burton mm -hmm. where it becomes highly stylized. He might sure. end up accidentally sort of tripping into a big branded career. Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, it's hard to know with any of these guys what's going to happen because, you know, people are fickle, you know, and, and things happen uh, that you don't necessarily, you might not necessarily expect. I mean, for me, um, you know, the idea that, uh, um, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Premium Rush would come in like eighth behind movies that have been out for weeks and, and things uh, on the box office uh, was a little surprising to me. I mean, he's just recently starred in one of the big hits of the year, the Dark Knight Rises. Now, yeah. that's a Batman movie, so it's a little different. People aren't going, oh, my God, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's in it. <laughs> i got to go see this. Yeah. You know, but but nonetheless, he's in that. So, you know, with that comes some credibility and some, you know, uh, you go, well, that's a quality film. Perhaps this other one will be too. But audiences, I think now, because it costs a little bit of money to go to the movies and things, I think that audiences are a little pickier than when it costs 35 cents to go. Right. Premium Rush might, you know, end up picking up a lot of interest when it reaches home video, for example. Absolutely, it will. I mean, I, I think that, you know, movies like that, um, you know, just take some time take some time to catch on and, and something like, you know, premium rush, uh, in it's, you know, well, it used to be called a second window. Now it's like second, third, fourth windows, whether it's on Netflix or uh, streaming online or wherever video on demand or wherever the hell it ends up on Blu-ray. Um, it'll find an audience somewhere, you know, for those movies that you used to have to like, um, you know, peruse if it, you know, when, when I, was working in the U.S. I always used to just turn on HBO, and it would always be a Brian De Palma movie on after midnight. Didn't matter what day of the week it was, it would always be a Brian De Palma movie on. And this, I think, will be just one of those movies that becomes part of the lexicon years from now because it will, it, it's a perfect TV kind of movie. Yeah, and I think also in the the case of of actors who take that trajectory like he did, and I think another actor that might be similar would be say Brad Pitt, is that yeah. you're trying to work your way into a position where you can actually work with directors that you can trust. Right. 
and then from there be able to build up uh, a brand. So, you know, for Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he's now been in multiple Christopher Nolan films, and you yep. can imagine that that's going to be a relationship that will continue. And that way it becomes safe for him to have a, uh, a Hollywood career. Yeah, no, I think so. And, and, and you know, he's an interesting actor. He brings uh, something that is a little different than some of his contemporaries. And, you know, guys like Johnny Depp and, and uh, Brad Pitt had to fight through the pretty boy thing first. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is handsome, I guess, but he's not, he's, you know, he's not swoony, swoonily handsome like Brad Pitt or Robert Redford or, or one of those guys. And, you know, for them, people that want to be serious actors but look a certain way, they get tarred with a brush early on that they're going to be matinee idols or they're going to be, they're going to get pigeonholed. And sometimes it's very difficult to break out of that. And I'm, I'm convinced that's why Johnny Depp wears a goofy hat in every movie that he makes. Or, you know, he's determined uh, to, you know, have a weird mustache or an eye patch or something, you know. And, and uh, you know, certainly uh, Brad Pitt has admitted that he went through a number of years where he said, my hygiene was terrible. I wore dirty clothes clothes my jeans are always ripped i didn't ever comb my hair because he was rebelling against being one of the most handsome men on screen and he wanted people not to think of him as that they, he wanted to put people off that somehow and so in public appearances he'd show up looking like uh, tom waits after a four-day bender <laughs> and, and in the hopes that people would look past the cheekbones you know okay interesting <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, well, my second topic I thought would be really great for both of us to kind of touch upon, mm -hmm. and it's the idea of copying. Right. And it's something that's a strong topic for both of our areas. I know, uh, especially in movies, your hero and also one of mine, Quentin Tarantino, is yeah. often criticized. Why do people consider him to be a genius when his movies seem to be nothing more than him sort of ripping off, right. off of other movies? And then in the world of technology, it's become a huge issue uh, just <laughs> recently Man. because of this massive billion-dollar fine involved. I know it's completely between Apple and Samsung, which might make it the biggest penalty that's ever been in history, uh, aside from say execution, right? Yeah, yeah, that's been right. accused of copying something. Yeah. Uh, in the battle between Apple and Samsung, just to give you an idea of how much of a penalty it is for Samsung. Uh, Apple, of course, has been awarded just over $1 billion in damages against Samsung because the jury, who, by the way, don't own iPhones, the, the head of the jury has never owned an Apple product and wow. calls himself a PC person, because the jury not only found against Samsung, but they used the word willful to describe oh, their copying, that gives the judge the opportunity to add $3 billion more to the uh, damages. And then yeah. once the stock market adjusted on Monday, um, Samsung's value as a company went down by $12 billion. And then on top of that, Apple is going through the process of now having bans placed on a lot of their products, which means Samsung's business is going to go down. So this is 15, could be $20 billion yeah. by the time all of this is sort of uh, at an wow. end. And it's just incredible. And I think there is this sense, if you don't understand the particulars of, say, patent law, or the mm -hmm. particulars of, of various forms of art, you may be confused as to why it seems that some forms of copying, blatant copying, are considered to be okay, but other forms of copying are not. And I thought both of us could kind of touch upon that a little bit in terms of the world yeah. of, of tech and movies, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, in, in terms of movies, in terms of Quentin Tarantino in particular, uh, Tarantino, you know, he... I, I, he's a he's a, a sponge. He is the he is the product of this popular culture that that he has drunk in his entire life. He's a guy that grew up in front of HBO, watching those Brian De Palma movies late at night, and watching you know going to the to the local uh, rep house to watch kung fu movies and all, working in video stores and all that. He was obsessive about it, and and so I don't see him as someone who copies so much as that just sort of assimilates all this information and then presents it to a new audience in a slightly different way. Because I still maintain that whatever Tarantino does, no matter uh, if it has a ring of familiarity to it, a ring of familiarity to it or not, um, I, I maintain that it is uh, still Tarantino-esque, that it is still filtered through him uh, and different and interesting and uh, um, sort of imaginative enough and put together in an interesting way that I don't see it as cocking. I see it as paying homage to uh, forms uh, that have been maligned. I mean, this guy's movies make 
billion, not billions, that's James Cameron. He makes millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars with his movies. Um, and he's paying homage to movies that cost uh, $50,000 to make and played in the drive-ins for a few cycles and made, you know, half a million dollars or a million dollars before they disappeared and some were lost. And, you know, he's also, a, a, he, he collects movies. So he saved a, a great many movies from disappearing. And so I think that Tarantino is someone who is, uh, who is, uh, a sponge and not a recycler so much as someone who really uh really admires the art of those who have come before him and 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 presents it in a slightly different way i mean can you know can a painter who paints a still life with an apple a pear and an orange in it be accused of plagiarizing or copying an artist 200 years ago that did a picture that had those three pieces of fruit in it and a table and a bowl and painted it with a brush and some of the same colors well, and you know, it's been interesting with the the Apple and Samsung case because Apple um, is quite well known for having a distinctive presence to yeah. all their products and their designs, and definitely the iPhone is undeniably a highly influential product to come into the market. So, it, it I think I kind of immediately felt that Apple was going to get some kind of a victory with this case. I was surprised when it was sort of a landslide; they just went, yeah, everything. You know, yeah, uh, that was pretty incredible, but. I want to kind of give some perspective here in terms of uh, not making it easy to say, well, Samsung clearly kind of copied Apple and right. should be punished. And Apple, of course, are the great original thinkers that they don't copy anybody else. Uh, so I'm going to show you something here. And uh, here we are. I'm going to bring it up. Mm -hmm. That may look a little familiar. Um, when I look at that, I see an iPod. <laughs> yeah, this top bit here, yeah. This is uh, uh, an actual portable music player from Braun in mm. the uh, late 1950s and 1960s. It is wow. designed by an incredible legendary industrial designer named Dieter Rahm. So this actually played vinyl records. You'd put your, it's a little portable device. You'd put your vinyl record on. It would actually play it, and you'd hear the music coming out of the, um, the speaker grill there. Uh, Apple's designers, including Johnny Ive, Steve Jobs, they partially worshipped. They were highly influenced by Dieter Rahm's. Everything right. that you see here is what they kind of borrowed in terms of uh, creating the iPod. They talk about the geometric simplicity of this particular device, the fact that there's only one control, the little lever on the left-hand yeah. side both turns on the record player as well as, you know, adjusts the volume. Right. This was all sort of things that Dieter Rahm's had kind of come up with. And when you look at it, to me, <laughs> it's it's very clear that, you know, with the circular controls and everything, the click wheel, yeah. that's a lot of where Apple came from in terms of coming up with their concept of both the iPod and the iPhone. Uh, well, I, I think it's I think it's possible, but again, I I see it like being Tarantino. You know, is that sort of thing where you just sort of you know uh, accumulate ideas and, and things. And if you want something simple, I mean, it doesn't get much simpler than this. <laughs> on the, you know, on the on the outside. And I mean, there's no lever. There's a couple of buttons on the side, but. I mean, you know, at a certain point, you've pared it down and pared it down. There's no place else to go with this, you know. And, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I, I agree that that looks familiar, but it's a different device. Well, I don't know. I, this I, is where I'm the gray talking, area comes in. Yeah. I guess where, where I, I should have prepared a side-by-side -side comparison in terms of the first iPod that came out, say, in 2002. Right. Right. And you compare that because, of course, their products have evolved since then. But yeah. There was very, very strong similarities in terms yeah. of Apple – didn't just come out of this out of the blue that there are sort of reference points uh, that they have been looking at. There are people that have inspired Apple. And I guess that's where the real difference really comes here in terms of understanding this, this distinction for people who don't get it is that I think the way that you have to think about it, what makes it okay for one company to apparently copy something and another company not to is the amount of work that is involved. Right. Um, the gang at Apple may have looked at Dieter Ram's uh, material, the products, and his design aesthetics, but they went off and they thought about it. They tried to think of how that could be applied to the things that they wanted to do. In developing the iPod, developing the iPhone, is something that they've come out clear and said, look, you know, it took... Uh, <laughs> I just threw up. This is a quick. picture. That, uh, that's a picture of the, of the 2002 iPod. All right. And, and so, so yeah, see, I know. I get what you're saying. Yeah, I get what you're saying there. That very, the, very close. The aesthetic is very close. Yeah. 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 
Uh, and, and obviously, you know, I think is the, the work that is involved is the deciding factor. Apple said it took them years and multiple prototypes to try to achieve what they achieved with the iPhone. And then Samsung turned around and did it in a matter of a couple of months. Right. That it is the uh, time and energy that you invest in terms of what your homage really is. When Quentin Tarantino does uh, a, a movie that's very similar to something else like Reservoir Dogs mm-hmm. and City on Fire. Yeah. He's taking a movie that was more about betrayal and the triangle that exists between a bunch of multiple characters. And then he processed it and came up with something that was a story that was almost self-contained, like a little theatrical play. Yeah. Yeah. Reservoir Dogs has a very different feel from, you know, the material that he was kind of inspired by. No, it certainly does. And, and I mean, I think we're talking about two different things. I mean, you know, uh, I, I would say that, you know, this is a piece of art as well as being a very functional unit. You know, mm-hmm. you can personalize it. I have my uh, Clockwork Orange, uh, oh, you know, cool. and the cool thing about this, it's made, remember uh, textbooks used to have sort of a canvas cover? Yeah, that's what this is. Uh-huh. So it's a clockwork orange with its canvas covers, text with canvas covers. But it's it's a it's a piece of very functional art, and I, and I get that. I don't necessarily think that all technology can be classified as art, but a lot of the Apple stuff can. But Tarantino, for me, creates art, and artists borrow and they evolve things, and 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 you know you are a product of everything that you've ever seen, and particularly I think if you're someone like him. Uh, or like my girlfriend Andrea, who is so visual, she remembers every detail of things. And for her work as an editor, that's very important. But you know, she's influenced by uh, everything. Everything becomes gets filtered through that brain and comes out as something else. But you know, uh, not uh, not all technology, I think, can be classified as that because art, I think, is a different situation. I think you are not obliged you are you are more able to borrow right. <laughs> so as long as you're not plagiarizing as long as you're not stealing outright but you can be influenced by in a way that maybe in business where there's billions and billions of dollars on the line you can't be influenced in that way well the the jury uh foreman has since been interviewed and he said that um what really cinched it for them was that they got to a point where they felt that um, clearly, Samsung did not invest as much time in terms of developing right. their response money, phone, yeah. uh, but that there was also very clear points where they could have achieved the same result in a different way, right. but specifically did not because they wanted their product to have that Apple-like feel. Right. Uh, in fact, right. uh, there was a, a point which the executives at Samsung apparently had been advised by Google saying, look, you know, uh, we see what you're doing, but you're coming way too close to Apple. It's time right. to move on. And those executives chose not to pass on that directive to their engineers. Right. They were then encouraged to kind of keep going with something that was clearly a little too close to the bone in terms of what Apple was doing. But it, it becomes this ongoing battle, I think, in in all sort of aspects of creating something is whether somebody's copying somebody right. or whether they've, they've kind of arrived to that, um, that concept on their own. Yeah, I mean, there's always things that, and, you know, not to, to belabor the point, but, you know, how often uh, in movie land do you have a spate of movies that are coming out that are completely unconnected with one another that are very similar? You know, a few years ago, there were two movies about Truman Capote that came out at essentially the same time. You know, and, and so things sometimes are just zeitgeisty. You know, they're in the air. They, they just want to get plucked out of the air. And, and it's not, it's not uh, uh, copying or stealing. It just happens to be wild coincidence. And I think in the complicated, uh, in extremely kind of busy worlds that we live in, I think that there is a, a, a place for coincidence. I think that sometimes, you know, George Harrison, when he was accused of plagiarizing My Sweet Lord from the, was it Shangri-La song? Uh, She's So Fine was the song. Right. And the judge said, okay, well, listen, it's undeniable that these are these two songs are very similar. But the judge also said, you know what? I don't think it's plagiarism. You're going to have to pay some money. You're going to have to shoot him some cash. But he said, I think that you had this melody along with thousands of other ones in your head from having heard it when you were a kid, or maybe it was your dad's favorite song and you heard it on the radio a lot. And it sort of, and it came out of you sort of organically. So he said, you didn't steal it, but he said, it's not exactly yours either. (laughs) Right. Okay. Who's going to, who's going to accuse a Beatle of plagiarism? Who's going to do that? (laughs) 
Yeah, I wouldn't want to be able to do that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, you know, for some people, the conflict might be that it's this is often used as a way to gauge how much of a an artist a person really is. Right. You know, there's a difference between what is often called a hack in Hollywood. The right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make entertaining movies. You know, yeah. you go and you eat popcorn and you watch them, but you know, they don't deserve to be given the kind of status that some film directors do. But you know, that is the I think a big aspect it is that these people do filter these ideas through and that they come to it on their own in their own way. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if you, an example of that is, uh, around my house, uh, I would step over Michael Bay, whose movies make, you know, five, <laughs> 5,000 times more money than David Lynch's, but I'd step over Michael Bay to get to David Lynch in sure. a heartbeat because he's an original thinker. Yeah. As I, and, as whereas well. Michael Bay is a technician with a good eye. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Okay, so this brings us um, to the end of our 15th mm -hmm. episode. We thank you, as always, for watching. And uh, as always, we're going to end with another round of Movie Pistols at Dawn. And I wanted to talk about the moon because we had uh, mentioned Neil Armstrong. And yes. this actual week is, is very special because in, I guess, a full kind of way, it's a blue moon. Right. Now, blue moon's a very tricky thing to nail down um, <laughs> because it's, it's sort of an expression. But right. it refers to the fact that you have more than one full moon in a month. You're only mm -hmm. supposed to get a new moon every month. This month, we've got two full moons. There used to be a time in which they would say a blue moon was when you had three. Right. Uh, in more modern age, people have kind of relaxed. They get confused about the concept. So actually, we you know you can say we have a blue moon. So I wanted to talk about movies that use the song blue moon and there are many of them yeah yeah well it's one of those songs that you know there's a certain a, a certain generation uh or for a certain generation of people everybody knew that song and right. so uh it was evocative of many things for many different people um and it has been as you say it's been used in in probably i don't know what hundreds but certainly dozens of films but for me um i love uh the jim jarmusch film mystery train and Mystery Train for me doesn't just use it once, doesn't just use it twice, but uses it three times. And what it does is it uh, uses a portion of this song followed by a gunshot in each of these three stories that make up uh, the interweaving kind of uh, storyline of this of this movie. But it's interesting because what you realize by the, if you don't catch it the second time, what you realize it by the third time is that these stories are happening simultaneously. And so right. we're just, we're, they're being presented chronologically, but they're actually supposed to be happening at the same time. And the song is playing on a radio in the background, and then you hear the gunshot, and by the third time you hear it, you go, oh, I see. How clever of Jim Jarmusch. Um, but it's a, it's a really good movie, and um, they use the, uh, the Elvis Presley version uh, mm -hmm. of the song, but it's been recorded by many, 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 many people. It's a song that's been around since the 1940s um, and has been used in all kinds of movies. The Smurfs apparently used it. Used it. <laughs> if you watch uh, Babe, there are little tiny mice that all sing it. That's right. Um, it's pretty incredible in terms of how many times it's been used and the different interpretations. I love uh, Mystery Train as well. Um, the, the version that they use in that song is the yodeling Elvis. Mm. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And for a Jim Jarmusch movie, it's great because it gives the um, the atmosphere of Memphis, Tennessee, which is where yeah. it takes place. The fact that this is a story of people who are kind of lost in the middle of the night. And right. so a lot of times they're just kind of staring there at each other, listening to the song. Well, the song certainly has a, like, um, <clears throat> pardon me, like a, um, I don't know, a wistful quality to it, or kind of a, you know, a, 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 there's a there's a sadness that comes along with this song, even though it sounds like kind of a silly pop song, particularly right. in versions like the uh, the Marcells and stuff with the boom 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 boom, you know, all that stuff. But it is, it's got a it's got a wistfulness to it. I think that also makes it popular for movie soundtracks because it's really it's an evocative sounding song. Right. Uh, my favorite uh, use of the song is in An American Werewolf in London. Oh. Yeah. Directed uh, by John Landis. John Landis. And it's it's famous, of course, for that transformation scene that was uh, performed by Rick Baker. The special effects undeniably are fantastic. But I love the way that John Landis handled uh, that transformation scene. The, <laughs> the fact that you have this very feminine setting. 
Right. David is in uh, her the nurse's apartment. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's he's all kind of in this little tiny you know <laughs> couch. It's like he's living inside some woman's dollhouse, and he doesn't really know what to do in terms of passing the time. And he's picked up this book, and it's almost I don't know if it's Jane Austen, but it's kind of that very right, right, right. You know, uh, British little tiny townhouse, and everything's very very home. And he turns on the radio. And it is that happy, you know, Marcel's bob it bob And then this incredible crack where he goes, oh, my God, and reaches for his, his head, just which is perfect in terms of the, the biology of what's going to happen to his body, right. acceleration of all the changes. But the, dr the drama that happens in that moment of trying to use that song where you've got a song that's kind of happy, it's kind of campy, but at the same time, these guys are screaming. <laughs> <laughs> the song he's in complete agony so you yeah. have the the screaming of the song sort of you know almost uh overdubbing his voice as he's trying to scream in terms of the transformation that that's just happening it's fantastic the the fact that you've got in some ways transformations with werewolves it's, it's about you know going through puberty in a sense it's yeah. a transformation that you, you feel with your body and here you have this song that's got that association thanks to movies like greece right. with teenagers in high school so i thought just the way he all ties it all together is really well done uh, i loved american werewolf in london not everybody did but i loved mm -hmm. it for its mixture of horror and and humor at the same time maybe you have to be a little dark to kind of laugh yeah, yeah, at yeah. the things that are happening in, in terms of the movie. But I thought that was a great mix in terms of having this incredibly awful thing happening to this guy. The way that he did it, where he immediately screams. In, in right. most werewolf movies, the transformation is kind of like a... They disappear. <laughs> And they come back up, and they look like a werewolf. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I love that this one starts off with a splitting migraine first. Right. And then he immediately feels heat, and he's ripping at his shirt. That, I thought, was fantastic, and to have Blue Moon playing along with it. So for me, that would be my choice. Although there are plenty of other movies that use it in very creative ways. Uh, if you know of a couple... Uh, by all means, we'd love to hear them uh, and get your take on it. Uh, much like, you know, Mr. Calhoun, who talked to yes. us about NASCAR racing. Uh, I'd love to get that kind of feedback. You can find all this information, all the links of everything that we talked about at our website, heyallyouzombies.com. We do put up an interactive poll where you can vote mm -hmm. on my choice and Richard's choice. That's usually one little segment down below just where yeah. you're watching this video. Uh, yeah, and uh, with that... Uh, we thank you again for tuning in and hope to see you next week. Absolutely. See you later.